Hey there, Julie Foudy, former captain of the U.S. Women's National Team, two-time Olympic gold medalist, World Cup champion as well. And most important, guest on the Chris Waddell Living It podcast. Yes! Add that to my bio, please. Put it on the top of the resume. I'm psyched to be talking with Chris. She and her teammates from the 1999 Women's World Cup soccer team were my heroes. And then I met Julie in person and she became an even bigger hero. They taught clinics, they reached out, they filled the Rose Bowl back in 1999. She's continued to do so much more, tell the story of the game. We'll be covering the World Cup from New Zealand and Australia this summer. And she is just an amazing person. I hope you get a chance to tune in and check it out. Hi, I'm Chris Whitehouse. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Welcome to Chris Waddell Living It, where we talk with experts in the experience of being human, those who've taken the risk to realize their dreams and live fully. Today, we actually have one of my heroes. I think I'm going to embarrass her a little bit by saying that. <laughs> she was number 11 midfielder, U.S. Women's National Team from 1987 through 2004, two-time World Cup winner, two-time Olympic gold medalist, silver medal in the Olympics, uh, was captain of the team from 2000 to 2004, started covering major soccer in 1988, 19, uh, in 1998 while she was still active and continues to this day. She does feature reporting, podcasting, writing, host of the podcast, uh, Laughter Permitted, which there is a lot of laughter in the podcast, which infused trailblazers in sports and the joy, chaos of the life of sports. She doesn't necessarily know this, but her team is the model that I've looked at. I mean, being someone with a disability, trying to change the way that world, the world sees us as athletes, as sees us as people. You guys created that model which I use to this day. So thank you very much for doing Aww. that. Thank you for joining me. What jo a nice intro, Chris. Can you intro me for everything, please? I'd love you to. You got one thing wrong. It's not oh, no. silver medal. It's not silver medal. It's white gold is what we call the Olympic white silver gold. medal. White gold. White gold. Wow. I did not know gold. that. I should have asked gold. you that before we started. <laughs> oh, that one hurts still today. 2000 it, Olympics, Norway. Damn. It's kind of funny because actually over, over my shoulder is because 2000 was Sydney, right? So that's right. actually my silver medal from Sydney. Oh, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you got a white gold too. Look at that. I got a white gold. <laughs> the only one that I won in the summer was the silver medal from Sydney. So, so yeah. Nice. But, you know, I look at it and I don't think it was so funny because the, oftentimes they say, don't meet your heroes. You know, like they won't, but like meeting you, meeting Mia, meeting Brandy, like you guys exceed what I thought I was going to meet. I don't know. Oh, you probably hear nice. that all the time, but the model part, how do you, do you understand kind of what the trailblazing part that you've done for so many other people who might not necessarily be in the, you know, in the main lane, right? Be more peripheral. Right. Yeah. Um, I think it's 
hard to understand it entirely, but it's super um, gratifying when, you know, people say the impact that group has had on them and not just sports, of course, but in other ways. And so, and then, you know, to see the current iteration of this team continue to fight for um, things that matter deeply, that mattered deeply to us and still matter deeply to us is so phenomenal. So yeah, we do take a lot of pride in that because our big thing back in the day was, um, you know, of course, winning is fantastic and standing on top of podiums is fantastic, but really our our overall mission was to not just change the game, but to change the way people perceived women playing sports, change the way people perceived women in society and their role in society. And so, um, and I think in, in some small measure, you know, what we did in 1999 in particular in the United States uh, really showed women in a different light and what was possible for women. So yeah, it is, it's really cool to hear when, when people say that. Well, one of the things you've been really successful in is passing that baton too. I mean, you talk about what you guys did, because that was 91 was the first women's world cup, yeah, right? And, way back. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then, and then, so, I mean, 99 kind of put you on that stage and you feel like in some ways that it had been there forever, but you guys in a lot of ways created that stage that then is continuing, but you've, but you've passed the baton. And one of the things I was reading something that you'd written and you said our goal, and you were talking about this as well, our goal is twofold to leave the game in a better place for the next generation and to be an inspiration for all seeking equal rights. And and what's interesting for me in that too is the idea of like all for equal rights too. I mean, it's it's really easy to clamor for yourself, isn't it? For say, we, we women need to be seen for who we are but equal rights for all is, is trying to find that universal message that connects people and, and isn't seeing that same sort of differentiation. But how have you been, how have you been able to pass that baton so well? Is it because the women now grew up idolizing you when, <laughs> when they right. were little girls? They had, they had no choice. Um, I, I, you know, one of the things we were very cognizant of as we were playing is uh, making sure, for example, uh, our national team at the time, when you had younger kids come onto the team, you, you made sure that they understood what we valued and not just in a sense of here's the X's and O's of how you play the game. But um, we wanted them to know that really we we really valued um the we over the me and the culture that that represented. And that meant our off the field fights as well. The contractual fights. I mean, when you have a player like Mia Hamm, who is your superstar, but she never wants more than anyone else. She wanted it to be even across the board. It didn't matter if you you know played every minute, scored every goal, wore a captain's armband. It didn't matter you, you, to the player that was 23 on the roster and never got a minute. Like that should be the same equal pay structure for all of us and those are the kind of things we fought for from the very beginning and our lawyer was used to joke that we were a bunch of socialists and and we'd be like no we just we just cared deeply about keeping it even for everyone and equal for everyone and so um we would pass the baton by teaching that younger generation as they came through, we would have them sit in meetings with us, we would have them participate in our leadership meetings. So when 
for example, we'd have a meeting with a coach. We would never just meet with the captain and the coach. It would be a larger group and it would encompass all the different age groups of the national team so that they could understand and listen and learn and, and hopefully grow so that when we all, you know, when we all left the national team that they, they would carry that baton. And so I think that's why there was such, I was just with, um, you know, some of the younger players at the ESPYs last night and there's such joy in um, seeing what they've done in this current team and finding this um, this incredible balance to still be dominant on the field, but also to fight for change uh, off the field. And that's, you know, what we cared so deeply about. And to see them, for example, get equal pay over the line was huge for us. We were like, yes, they did it. We finally got there. So, um, yeah, I think that gives us great pride because, you know, we felt like that was important to, to pass that baton and, and say to them, sprint like hell, just keep running, just run, run, run. You're going to be fine. Just keep running. Where, where did that all come from? The idea of the, we over me though, too, which, I mean, it sounds, it makes perfect sense, but it's not necessarily intuitive as far as human beings are concerned was, was mm -hmm. there something that you guys came together and said this is this is who we want to be or was there leadership how did, how did that all work well I think we realized early the really the the foundation of this national team going back to Anson Dorrance who was uh, one of the first national team coaches was that you know he valued he valued and he and he um made sure all these principles became our foundation, you know, working for each other, uh, grinding it out, this blue collar kind of ethic uh, behind the mentality of the team. He used to talk about how he admired talent, but he um, he ultimately had such respect for courage and for being a good teammate. And so from the very first days of me being on the national team, those were all the things that we were learning. And um and then it became 16, right? Is that yeah, 16 years old. And then, you know, it became uh it, we we realized if we got that right and the the we over the me, then we were very successful. And you obviously you want to be winning. So um team chemistry and team unity and uh and that part of the equation became very, very important because we realized if we could get that right then often we were winning world cups we were winning olympics and of course you know it helps when you have a lot of talent and you have mia hams and brandy chastains and all of those but um it's not just that i mean that's the thing i think people get so wrong is they don't understand if you get the team chemistry element of it right where you want to just run through walls for people and it doesn't matter what your role is, then good things happen. And that's not just in sports, that's in everything and cultures you're building within groups and communities. And so um, we got that right often, not always, but we got it right often. And and that's where I think that was our secret sauce for so many years. What about the idea of, of sort of being on the outside looking in to a certain extent. I mean, they didn't want to even call it a World Cup, the first the first World Cup that you went to, right? I mean, it was they weren't sure yeah. if it would actually yeah. be a World Cup, right? Yeah. And and does that reinforce that sense of of we versus me? Like we've got to oh, be absolutely. really strong because we're yeah. playing the game, but we're playing history, we're playing society, we're playing, I don't know. I'm putting words in your totally, mouth. Totally, yeah. Totally, because you are on the outside looking in. And so you're trying to change the model and change what it looks like. 
Um, and, and it's a model that honestly wasn't one that um, FIFA cared deeply about or cared at all about back in the day, right? We'd be like, we don't care what you think about women's soccer. If you love it or hate it, you're just missing out on all this untapped potential. And the thing that honestly turned the game for us is that there was money that you're leaving on the table. And that's what we used to say, you know, we we're like, okay, we can't get to them any other way. Oh, here's how we get to them. You're leaving money on the table. Okay. Like, do you care about, yes, you care about money. We know that you're leaving money on the table. We used to say to us soccer all the time. Do you know how much potential is out there for women and women's soccer? Um, so that was a huge unifier. And I think for anyone who's been on the outside looking in on anything that, you know, you're trying to change, you can understand that there's, um, that there is unity for sure in that misery. And so we, and, and you, and it, and you feel it. I mean, it burns. It, it's like, you know, you, you get to a point where you get so angry. Um, and our decision, which is another great life lesson was, you know, how do you take that anger about um, being marginalized and turn it into something really pr productive and positive. And instead of just bitching about it being, you know, us being marginalized and them not caring, um, we were done doing that. We got to a point where, and honestly, Billie Jean King was the one who helped us get to that point where she's like, well, what are you doing about it? I'm like, well, <laughs> I don't know. We don't feel like we have any power. She's like, what are you talking about? Get it done, Fowdy. Um, and so she was the one that made us realize, oh, we can do something about this and let's stop complaining and actually move on this and turn it into you know, positive action. How did that, because I mean, one, it makes perfect sense, right? I mean, there, there's a huge demographic that you're talking about, the female sports demographic, the, you know, the, the, the moms are often the ones spending most of the money, right? So that's a desirable demographic for the advertisers. How do you take that step and go from, hey, there's huge potential here to what back in 99, it was like, it was Nike and Pert and some of these others that, that introduced us to you. Mm -hmm. How do you get to, how do you get to that point where you get the bigger megaphone where, I mean, Nike, what, that's like the biggest, you know, their biggest sports advertising in the world. Right. I mean, right. Right. Um, well, it, it took a lot of rattling of, of the cages. You know, I, I would have, I would have hoped we thought, you know, oh, well, you win a world cup and you'll get there. And it was like, yeah, no, no one cared still in 1991. It's still the best kept secret that we won a world cup. Um, and so I, I think um, a lot of it was just literally like shaking, shaking, shaking people going, it's got to change and we've got to help build it. And, um, and it took a ton of work. Like for example, us hosting that 99 world cup, um, came with a lot of sweat equity from the players. We were doing clinics, we were doing autograph sessions, we were doing promotional, promotional things literally every week. And we would joke like, if you need us to knock on people's front doors to get butts in the seats, we will do that. We're fine with that. Um, and and because we had a point to prove, we we wanted to prove that what we had been saying for so long that there is all this untapped potential in women's soccer and women's sports. And it wasn't just women's soccer. We felt like, okay, this is a showcase for something even bigger than that. This is how every women's world global event should be, should be held and staged. Um, 
and so uh we we did put a lot of work into it and and really had to constantly say what are we doing how are we marketing this how are we supporting this and i think the big turning point of course was when you know the 99 world cup did as well as it did with the eyeballs and attention and um and that's because there was you know a local organizing committee that spent 3 years with you know marketing efforts and grassroots efforts and they actually you know, put some some muscle behind it, then this is the result. You get, you know, 90,000 people packing stadiums and you get a worldwide, atten- you know, audience and great numbers, 40 million watch that final. So I think that was the the turning point where um, people saw the potential. And and that's why um, I'm I'm so proud of 99 because there was there was that we could have very easily done it in smaller stadiums kept it regionalized which is what fifa wanted um not gone big and no one would ever be talking about you know women's sports at this level i don't think if we had done that it's an interesting question right because because so much of it is your your job as effectively a professional athlete is to is to train and compete but it sounds like that was not the huge part of your of your job right i mean it was like it was like maybe 25 almost listening to you it sounds like that was almost like 25 percent of what you did and and you're building something that i'd imagine there's there's such a huge pride of ownership in Mm -hmm. in creating something like for all of you as teammates but it's so different than so many of the other sports that we see like if you were you know, if you were, I mean, if you were a little bit taller, if you, if you'd been a, you know, like a, a male basketball player with the same kind of, you know, level of skill, it would have been an entirely different journey for oh, you yeah. where it's kind of going from one place to the other. How is, cause obviously you were successful as well. So it didn't detract from your ability to compete to, I, I mean, I don't think it did, you know, there probably, there, you might've been a little bit tired, but you might've been uh, energized as well, but that journey, what, how do you look at that journey and say, this is the journey that I was on. It was the journey that I was supposed to be on, but at the same time, it could have been an entirely different journey. How do you look at it and say, uh, would you do it differently? I guess is, is, is what I say or, or, or what I'm asking. Yeah. No, it's a great point. We used to say that all the time. Like, why do we have to spend all this energy fighting for this stuff? It's a lot. It's it's, it's like, God, I, I just I just want someone to say, no, you don't have to fight for that anymore. We're good. Um, it's interesting because now I'm a co-owner with Angel City, which is a women's professional team in Los Angeles. And I remember one of the first meetings with some of the owners that were founding owners who were women, Natalie Portman is one, Julie Ehrman, Kara Nortman, these three awesome women that founded the club. And basically um, I, I was kind of giving the normal, like, you know, why this matters, you know, women's sports and why this investment matters. And and you used to have to expend a lot of energy explaining to people like why you should bet on women. And they were like, yeah, we get it no shit. This is why we're in this. (laughs) You don't have to, you don't have to expend any more energy explaining that to us. I was like, Oh, thank God. It's so tiring to have to explain to everyone why. 
Um, and that's how I felt like our entire career was because it was literally explaining to people, you expended a lot of energy explaining why you should bet on women and why women's sports mattered. Um, and obviously you don't have to do that nowadays as much, but at the same time, and we used to, um, we used to joke about, you know, uh, how tiring that was off the field. Um, but I, to your point, actually gained a lot of energy by doing that. Uh, you know, it's another conversation I've had a lot of, you know, conversations with, with Billie Jean King about is that, you know, she says, yeah, being you guys essentially were the first gen, the first generation, we were the first generation in tennis. You were the first generation in soccer and it sucks. It's a lot of work. It's hard. Um, but at the same time, you're changing something that uh, you're leaving a, a, this indelible imprint on the sport and on society in a way that others aren't able to do. And by that, um, I would never, I would never change it. I would never go back and say, oh, I, you know, I'd love to be getting, you know, the salaries that this current women's national team, well, maybe I would love that. I would love that part of it. But, you know, you, you look back and go, okay, well, yes, that $10 a day per diem and you're fighting for more than just $10 a day per diem. Um, was hard but actually as as they say in the movies the hard is what makes it great right and and so that's really I think our legacy too is um, is being able to deal with the hard and expending all that energy was part of who we were it's yeah and and you never really stop the fight right I mean it's it's one of those like you talk about the Rose Bowl and filling the Rose Bowl which was absolutely amazing and it's kind of you know, I feel like in some ways it's sort of like, in some ways that that final is is kind of like the miracle kind of thing at uh you know with 1980 of like well where were right. you and and I was actually I was racing wheelchairs in Toronto at the time so I was actually in my hotel room watching watching Aww. there yeah. which was very cool and uh, but but I think it was I think it was such a monumental moment for so many people. But it's also like you do get those monumental moments and you think, well, this is it. Now we've now we've arrived. Mm -hmm. And then and then you can go back to, you know, from having very few fans to filling the Rose Bowl to then going back to very few fans again. Right. Where mm -hmm. where yeah. you're riding that wave. How do you keep the. Keep the fight, I guess, when yeah. you're. When you're well, sort it's of interesting you way. say that because that you know there was never a oh we've made it uh, type of feeling from '99 because we knew <laughs> we knew and and we called it wholesome discontent is something our our uh, Dr. Colleen Hacker who worked on our national team with our national team for many years called it this this wholesome discontent where you were constantly like okay that was fantastic but we can be better and we can do more and um. And in a healthy way, hence the health, the wholesome, because we also know there's a lot of um, uh, unhealthy discontent that you know can lead to to uh, many things that aren't positive. But this um, this team and this group, you know, immediately after '99 was like, okay, that was great, but how do we sustain that? And how do we make sure it's an not just an anomaly? It's actually the standard that we're carrying forward for you know the rest of of the lifetime of this team 
and um it took longer than actually I had hoped. I thought after 99 and people seeing packed stadiums, it would be like, oh, there'll be this global transformation and people will understand the value of women's sports and the standard. And uh, and yet, you know, I feel like it, 20 years later, now almost 25, um, we finally got to it and took another two decades to get to the realization of what women's sports and the value of that is. So it took longer than, you know, the changing society and cultures is, is, is a slow process. As it turns out, um, you can't just give them the back of your hand and slap them around a bit and say, okay, we, we shall change. Um, but I do feel like, uh, we're there finally and in a moment for women's sports in particular. And as we're seeing with women, um, that feels very gratifying given, you know, the slog that it's, it has been for many years. You were saying that the value of women's sport, what, what, how do you define the value of women's sports if it's reaching that point where, where we're realizing the value of women's sports? What does that mean? Well, for so long, we've said, oh, my gosh, the, you know, and it was mostly anecdotal. Like we, we, there is there is a market and there's eyeballs and there's attention and there's a, a thirst and hunger for more programming, you know, more marketing, more games. Um, and people would kind of like roll their eyes and go, yeah, okay, sure. And then they'd say, no one cares. Um, and now you see the data, you see the numbers. It's not just anecdotal. You're seeing, you know, the sponsorship levels, the the revenue coming in on the women's side, the attention, the eyeballs, you know, the numbers they're drawing with ratings. And a lot of that is, you know, for example, at ESPN, where I work, you know, now you're seeing, you know, women's sports on ABC and you're seeing women's sports on ESPN primetime and you're seeing them in primetime sl slots that were once only dedicated to men. And, you know, and and yet they're still surprised that, oh, my gosh, actually, they're doing well in those slots. Well, yeah, people people will watch if you put it on. Um, and so that transformation has been slow, but you're seeing now the data to back it up and the sponsorship, for example, at Angel City, before we'd even played a game in our first year of women's professional soccer in Los Angeles, um, you know, the club had raised 35 million in sponsorship revenue before we'd even stepped on the field. So, uh, you know, it was, you know, valued at 3 million, the club when it was bought now clubs are selling for 50 million on the women's side, right? And that's just going to keep escalating. So you're seeing all the data that backs it up. But most importantly, you're seeing women on television, you're seeing them visible, you're seeing them in spaces where people can actually watch now. Um, and so that is hugely gratifying as well. I would imagine. And so for you, did you see the telling of the story was was the becoming a journalist? Was that an offshoot? Because you had you had choices, right? I mean, you were you, you could have gone to med school at Stanford or stayed in, in sport and continued to slog it out. I mean, obviously med right. school is a bit of a slog and being a doctor's a yeah. slog as well. Yeah. But but slogging it out in a way that that doesn't always seem gratifying is so personal, but right. where it's it those those gains can be really incremental and and not necessarily the mainstream kind of path of like, what do you do for a career? Well, I'm a doctor. That that makes it a little bit easier. What do you do for, I'm, I'm promoting women's sport in a variety of different ways. And it's like, oh, okay. Is there a job that does that? How does that work? Right. But did you see journalism as, as a logical offshoot to, to tell that no. story? Was that part of what you'd always done? Not really. I mean, I kind of fell into journalism and um, I, you know, I always considered growing up 
you didn't see a lot of women on TV doing sports broadcasting. And so I had thought, oh my God, I, you know, I loved Howard Cosell. I loved uh, watching sports as a kid, but I never saw it as a, a viable option for me growing up. Um, and yet I had a producer who came to me when I was on the national team and said, uh, you, you're really natural and comfortable on camera. Have you ever thought about television? And I was like, not really. I was going to go the, you know, the more traditional path be a doctor, go to med school. I had gotten into med school. Um, and so uh, it wasn't until this person was like, hey, you should try it. Why not? And so I started calling games while I was still playing on the national team um, as just, you know, to check it out as, you know, just to dabble. I like to dabble in things all the time. And then I quickly realized no one wants this energy and personality in a hospital or in a, a lab, you know, 24 hours a day, uh, you know, inside. I was like, no, I could not, I, I would not, I would not make a good doctor. Uh, I would drive people batty with my energy. So um, quickly said, nope, you know, it wasn't even a soccer decision. It was like, I just don't want that as a lifestyle. And so I uh, deferred for two years at, you know, medical school and then decided after all of the humbio and uh, organic chem and physics, God, what a waste that I took in my life that I wouldn't be utilizing any of that. I could have been doing like, you know, journalism. How about that? Learning how to be a journalist. Uh, so I, I did follow into it, but then I quickly realized too that, you know, we're not telling many stories about women. We're not sharing um, the the path of these, you know, incredible athletes that uh, we were covering a lot of great men's stories and there are plenty, but we're not really telling the women's side of the story. And so then became largely an advocate at ESPN for telling women's stories and which is why we, you know, started our podcast. We felt like there wasn't enough in the space five years ago of people learning about these amazing women um, who are doing incredible things. So yeah. So then, you know, just through my advocacy on the team is like, you start to realize, oh, okay, now in this space, I can make a difference too, in terms of the visibility. And so that actually, when I think of all the different things I've done in my journal journalistic career, that that's the thing that gives me most pride is we've told a lot of great stories about amazing women. Who do you have like a, uh, like a muse, like an audience that you think of when when you're doing commentary. So for instance, for me, I, I often think of my mother. My mother, you know, mm. you know, traveled around, but she, you know, didn't know necessarily know all of the lingo and everything and all of that stuff. I mean, I read about your your dad saying that it was a busy time for him. So at work, so he might not be able to make it to the World <laughs> Cup, you know, kind of thing. So it, that's an audience. And I also try to think of the of the athletes or like the families of the athletes to have them go, okay, you know, that might have been that might have been a, a harsh comment, but it's but it's fair. It's honest. Right. right. You know, like like those are kind of the ones that I think of. Do you have those people that you're thinking of? Are you thinking of the little girl who's starting out in soccer? Or are you who right? Yeah. That's a really good question. Um I I don't think of it in that regard because I I do feel that we attract a very large audience. My my biggest challenge is how do you uh, keep an audience that's new to the sport in, right? And um and this is what I think about probably the most. How do you how do you balance? You know, you have people who are watching 
soccer maybe for the first time or um, are new to the sport and not getting too technical, but at the same time, not dumbing it down so that the, you know, the, the rabid soccer fan is going, you know, why is she explaining what a penalty kick is? Um, well, you know, why, why is she using this terminology? So the balance of both of, um, which I think for any soccer commentator, that's always the challenge in, in the United States is, you know, as the market continues to grow, um, is, uh, is realizing that you, you want to make it accessible and, and understandable, but you also, you, you can't, you can't talk to them like, you know, they've never they've never watched or seen the sport i mean there's just so much so many fans in this in this country that um are are incredible fans and and rabid fans that um i i try and speak to them mostly but make it accessible make it accessible right because you also you have to continue to grow those numbers in order to be successful and grow those fans that hopefully they also yeah and it also depends you know what network you're on <laughs> you know if you're if you're on a bigger network honestly often the conversation will be you know for any sport i do is like okay we're on abc not everyone's going to understand it you know you talk a little differently or we're on espn like it's a broader audience than you know when you go on to to something that's a little bit more hardcore um the diehards are going to find you on this channel so that's interesting as well it depends on what you're on how have you enjoyed the the podcast part of it? So you've been doing the the, the commentary. Yeah. You started with the commentary. You're writing. You're doing features. You're doing. I mean, you're doing so many different things. Podcast is a little bit different medium. Oh yeah, I actually my a producer my producer who co-hosts the podcast with me at at ESPN. She pushed me way way back ten years ago to to be doing podcasts, and I was like. I don't want to, I don't want to get into the podcast space. I mean, already 10 years ago, it felt like a lot of people were in it. Now it's like, what? Um, and I was like, nah, it just feels so crowded. How do you differentiate yourself from it? And, uh, she's like, you're going to love it. I'm telling you, it's totally different. And so, um, five years ago is when we launched and I'm like kicking myself that I didn't get in earlier because it's so much fun. As you know, it's just, there there's nothing uh like the conversations you can have and and when you're on television and you're sitting down in front of a camera and there's lights and it's formal you know it's a very different conversation and even though you know this is on video and this is being recorded it it's just such a different vibe that i love it's more my vibe uh and so i've and the stories you get from people, as you know, Chris, where you're, you know, that's our, that's our goal every day too, is I just want to sit and learn. I want to grow. I want to, I want to hear about, you know, your stories and what you've been through. And so um, it, it doesn't feel like a job. I'm like, wait, what? This, this is a job. This isn't a job. This is fun. It's incredible. You get to, you get to learn from all these amazing humans. Yeah. Are we already recording or are we just having a conversation? <laughs> right. <laughs> It really is. It's it's an interesting medium and looking at, so what will you be doing? Because the World Cup is going to be starting soon, the Women's World Cup down down under, right? In New Zealand and, and Australia. Yeah. What will you be doing down there? Because ESPN is not covering this one, right? No, we don't cover. Yeah, we, we haven't had the World Cup since 2014, actually. Um, so no, I, I actually will be doing some, all my soccer got moved over to Turner Sports, Warner Brothers Discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, most recently 
uh, acquired all the rights to U.S. soccer games that are, aren't, aren't World Cup, not all games, but most of the friendlies. So um, I now do stuff with TNT and HBO Max for the soccer side of it. I still kept my non-soccer stuff on ESPN, but for the soccer side of it. So I'll be doing some stuff for CNN, just some light reporting for them while I'm over there. I don't have to be over the entire time because the second half of the tournament actually conflicts with um, I do a, a ton for Little League World Series uh, for ESPN. So I'll do for Little doing... League World Series. That's a, soccer and Little League World Series. Sounds <laughs> yeah. I know, I know nothing about baseball, really. I just talk to people. and It's so fun. They're like, just go have fun. I'm like, OK, I can do that. I can go talk to people, talk to the parents. I talk to the kids. I mean, it's all 12 year olds. It's my perfect demographic. I figure under 12, over 80. That's my demo. Um, so, yeah, it's. Uh, so I'll just be doing, I'll actually be going for the first time in a long time. Usually you're covering it every day. You're in press conferences every day. I'll be going, you know, to do some reporting. Yes. For CNN, but I'll actually be, um, enjoying it, which is really nice. Cause I've never been in New Zealand. So I'm like, I'm getting down there. I'm going for two weeks down to New Zealand. So. And will you bungee jump while you're in New Zealand? <laughs> I hope so. I got to. I got to, you know, I've been so busy this summer. Uh, I had to do special Olympics coverage over in Berlin as well. So I've been kind of running and I, and I literally, my sister's going and her, her husband, I literally emailed her yesterday. I was like, any research on what we should be doing? I need help. I'm not good at that. You know that I don't want to get over there. And, but we have some friends that live in Auckland. So we're staying with them. And I figure, you know, they're locals. They're they're new. They're Kiwis. They'll, they'll be like, here's what you do. You got it. Get a car and go. That'll be perfect. I actually I skied down there for a month. The first really. What was it? I guess it was the the first the first summer after I started skiing. So I spent a month down there, down in the South Island. So that's yeah, where that's like I did bungee area, jump, right? Queenstown, which is sort of like a. New Zealand version of Disneyland kind of thing where you get like the jet boat rides, you get the, uh, the bungee jumping I know. was down there as well. So yeah, I think you, you will have a great, it's amazing, just beautiful place. The one thing that always blew me away was our coaches and ski coaches, probably like soccer coaches, you know, are taking more risks oftentimes than maybe they should be. And they had one lane bridges. So you would go along and it's a two lane road, but it was a one lane bridge. And so I just remember them going fast and then like just beeping and just continuing to go across this one lane bridge. Oh, and I'm like, gosh, okay, well, this could be, this could be it. This could be, this could be all over now. So, so, and what are you expecting? I mean, the U S is going for an, an unprecedented three P in these yeah. games, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's never been done by any men's or women's national team um, to win back to back to back. So uh, it's not going to be easy. It's so, it's so hard now. And especially as the popularity of women's soccer has grown and the investment and funding and all that Europe, especially their teams are so good. So, um, I mean, they for sure could do it. It's just going to be really hard. And especially the U S has a ton of injuries every team. I feel like, you know, it, the injuries are always a huge part of, you know, what your final world cup roster looks like, but it just feels like it's, it's a lot this year. <laughs> I was talking to some national team teammates the other day and we're like, God, does it seem more than normal? And, and some big names, you know, their captain, Becky Sauerbrunn for the U S is out with a foot injury, which is a huge blow. Really 
the most informed player in the world. I think you could argue got hurt in April. Mal Swanson, formerly Mal Pugh, is another big name on the U.S. women's national team. She was just lighting it up and uh, tore her patellar tendon, and so she's out. So those things hurt. Um, but yeah, it's a chance to make history, and I would never, you know, underestimate this women's team. But the European group with England and Germany and Spain and France, those four in particular, are going to be really good. How do you look at, because you were the golden age of soccer. How do you, or at least that's what the journalist said, right? So how do you look at the quality of play now versus the quality of play? I mean, you hope that it continues to improve, right? Of when you were competing. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the the depth of, of players you have as well. And and just this, especially in, in the U.S., you have just so many girls playing, millions of kids playing. Imagine that, you know, the pool you're pulling from. Um, and so that's very different. And the way uh, in which they're training them is entirely different, right? You know, with all the data and analytics that go into it. Um, you know, my pregame meal was donuts and a huge cinnamon roll bigger than my head was, you know, a, a good sign that there was going to be a good game. And now, and now, you know, they've got their, they've got their protein shakes all lined up after, you know, after training at training that's specific to each player. I was like, what? Come on. There was no protein shakes. I, you know, if I could grab a bagel at the end, I was excited. Um, and so, yeah, it is, it is a lot different to see the evolution of the game and, and how far they've come. And especially when, you know, there used to be just, if you could, you could count on one hand, how many teams could potentially win a world cup. And now it's very different, right? It's just the, they're broadening that base of of teams that are are, vi are are vying for a World Cup title, and that's that's such a good sign. And soccer is also one of those sports where anything can happen too. You know, it, it can be it can be you can totally dominate and not win a game. Exactly. Yeah, it's frustrating, right? And they call it the beautiful game, but sometimes it's sucky. It's the sucky game. Sometimes, you know, you you can dominate and you can you can totally possess the ball and outplay an opponent and then they get one counter attack and boom they score but it is really the interesting part of soccer is that you know the the chess match that it becomes if you can just keep a game tight even if you're you know overplayed and outplayed the entire uh 90 minutes you you still have a chance at trying to sneak one out so um, and that's actually what a lot of teams do against the United States. They know they've got a lot of, you know, a lot of players, a lot of talent, a lot of speed, a lot of athleticism, and they just keep it tight, keep it compact. They play and, you know, this, you know, they call it a low block in soccer. They just keep it really, uh, you know, really compact. And, and if they can stay in the game long enough, then maybe they can pick something out with a set piece or a counterattack. And that does happen for sure. It really does. So you were talking about going to New Zealand and getting to spend a little bit of time. I did see something recently where you're talking about improving the quality of life, you know, like giving yourself a little bit of time and not just working all the time. How is that working out? Yeah, that's my that was my COVID reset moment, right? As we all had. Uh, yeah, I, I'm playing a lot of beach volleyball and uh, and some pickleball, of course. And so, and, and like, this is a perfect example, you know, typically I'd go and I'd cover and be on the road a month. I'm gone most of the summers. And so, you know, my kids often, I have a 14 and 16 year old. I don't see them during the summers because I'm, you know, traveling, they get to travel. So that's not, it's not all bad. They come with me at the end of events often, you know, to an Olympics or world cup, but um, I just, 
I thought, you know, I, I don't need to cover this like I've covered it in the past. I don't need to be spending every day at a press conference. I can cover this and still go and um, and have some balance and actually see the country and enjoy it a little bit more. So those are all the little decisions you get to make later in your life when you're wise and old, like I am <laughs> finally wise and old. Well, actually, maybe not wise, just old, but getting wiser, wiser, yeah. wiser. Uh, and, and so those, you know, those are the things you start to, to tinker with, with, you know, career choices too, of do I want to cover every soccer game out there? No, I don't. I just want to cover the ones I care about deeply. And then, um, and then I can, you know, have a little more time. I just figure, you know, there's only like four or five years I'm going to have the kids around. So uh, in the house, I want to, I want to be a little more present. So I've been really working hard on that, on, on not traveling as much because unfortunately, as I tell the kids, people don't come to my couch. I have to go to theirs. One day, maybe they'll come to my couch, but I still have to, when I do an interview, I have to go to them. When I call a game, I have to go to the game. The game doesn't happen here. Um, so, but it's, I mean, it's been such a blessing to, to call this a career. Cause as I said, it just doesn't feel like you're working. And that's the nice thing. I've been, you know, taking my 14 year old this summer on a lot of stuff with me, um, my son. And he's like, mom, this is what you do for a living <laughs> he's like this is so much fun maybe i should go into this i'm like i know it is kind of fun <laughs> and you should it's a good it's a good living it's a good living but you've also worked hard enough that now you get to make some of those choices as yeah, well so yeah makes well, life a little you, bit Chris, easier tell my kids that because they're like you don't even work i was like what? yes i do <laughs> We've talked, we, you can give them this podcast if you'd like, because we've just yes. talked about what 30, 33 <laughs> years of, of work, right? 32 years of work, 33, yep. something like that. So anyway, Julie, thank you for working so hard. Thank you for being a model for me uh, and for so many other people out there. Thank you for bringing joy into what you're doing, into the lives of so many people and the idea of we over me and just doing oh, such, a, such a great job. Yeah, thank oh, you. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for all you're doing. You're the model, my man. You you uh, you are an incredible inspiration. So I, I, uh, I, 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 I know you say, you know, we have been a model for you, but don't ever underestimate all that you're doing for people as well. So thanks for being a constant inspiration. I appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, please tell your friends, tell your friends to tune in, to like us, to follow us, to subscribe, and we will continue to bring you great content. We'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Waddell Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.